0: Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. And to all of you American listeners, I hope you had a fabulous Thanksgiving long weekend and that you're ready to push through to the winter break. Uh, On the road this week, uh, this week is the two day grading from the inside out training in Minneapolis. So, always excited to do the workshops and get together with large groups of people. So, looking forward to that. Uh, Thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Kyle Pierce. Uh, Kyle is a high school math teacher and the co-host of the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. So we get serious about talking about math instruction. But as I said to you at the conclusion last week, when we recorded this interview, I realized that so much of what Kyle had to say is so applicable to any classroom and any subject, not just math. So if you're not a math teacher, trust me, you're going to want to listen to this uh, interview anyway. Uh, And in Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about what might be a slightly different view of assessment than one you currently hold, and that is the idea that assessment is a procedure for drawing inferences. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Kyle Pierce is coming up. But first, I want to open this week with maybe a little nudge or a push or a little inspiration by reminding you that now is the time. Stop waiting for the conditions to be perfect. Stop waiting for the so-called right time. Stop waiting for others to motivate you. Just stop. If there is something you're thinking about doing or thinking about starting, then start. If there is a small, medium, or large change you wanna make in your life, whether professional or personal, if you wanna create that, then now is the time. Take action. Every small step forward is a step forward. As someone who has authored or co-authored several books, I often remind people that the only real difference between me and those people like me, and and those who haven't written a book, for example, is that I actually put my fingers on a keyboard, and others did not. I don't consider myself special. I'm not some unicorn. I just actually did it. Now we don't do this as much anymore, but back in the day, I used to say when my first book was published, you know, being an author is really cool until you set foot in a bookstore. Now we don't go to bookstores much anymore, um, but when you set foot in a bookstore and you begin to look around, you realize. There's a lot of people that have written books. It's not that cool. It's just the difference is we did it and others didn't. So whether it's writing a book or developing an expertise or making a personal shift in your life, now is the time to get started today, right now, in the next five minutes. Something, do something that takes you one step closer to reaching your ultimate goal. Now, you know the sayings, right? We're all familiar with them. For example, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Now, some people may not know where that comes from, but that saying originated in chapter 64 of the Tao Te Ching, which is attributed to Lao Tzu. Now, the actual verse in chapter 64 is this. A tree that fills our embrace grows from a single seedling. A tower nine stories high starts with one brick. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And then, of course, there is Martin Luther King Jr. Take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step. I think we hesitate sometimes because we're not sure how it's going to end or whether we'll actually accomplish what it is we're setting out to accomplish. But what if instead of obsessing about how it will end, you spent more time obsessing with how it will begin? Rather than planning the next 37 steps, how about we just take the first one? One of the ways I trick myself as an author is I never sit down to write a chapter. That is overwhelming, and I sit there, and I freeze, and I get writer's block, and I can't really think of what I'm going to do. Like You you just don't end up doing anything. So what I've done to trick myself is I tell myself, I'm not writing a chapter. I'm going to write a section or even a paragraph. You see, you got to have one and a half pages here, three pages there, another four pages over here, and suddenly you start to have a chapter unfold, right? Now, to be fair, I do work from an outline, so it's not as if I'm writing this from scratch, And it, but it's not super detailed. It just gives me a flow. It loosely lays out the pathway forward, so I have a bit of a compass, so to speak, but I don't think of writing a chapter. I think of working on just one section at a time, right? I try to approach most big things that way take one step one step is one step closer and that's better than nothing so whatever you're thinking of right now there's something in your life right now personally or professionally you're thinking of changing you're thinking of enhancing you're thinking of whatever it is you're thinking of right now don't wait now is the time for you to begin that journey Even the smallest of actions can move you one step closer to your ultimate outcome. The time is now. Honestly, don't wait. Pause this podcast. Focus on what is most pressing in terms of the changes you want to make professionally or personally, the things you want to accomplish, what you want to achieve. Pause this podcast. Think about that and do one small thing in service of that goal. One thing. A thought, an idea, a vision, something that takes you one step closer to achieving that goal. Because after you've done that one thing, your journey of a thousand miles has already begun. Joining me this week for the interview is Kyle Pierce. Kyle is a K 12 mathematics consultant with the Greater Essex County District School Board. That's a mouthful for sure. Hmm. Uh, Kyle's passion for math drives him to uncover creative ways to spark curiosity and fuel a sense of making meaning through problem based math lessons that are contextual, visual, and concrete. Kyle also delivers workshops across North America and is the co-host of the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast, along with John Orr, and also shares a lot of his information on math, uh, MakeMathMoments.com.
1: Uh, lots of mouthfuls there, but Kyle, great to see you again. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Tom. I'm really excited to uh, to chat with you and your awesome audience.
0: Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm excited to have you here, too. Math is not a topic that we've really dug deep into, so I'm excited to have you on, was uh, you know honored to be on your podcast mm-hmm. and of course we reciprocated that and a little pod swap going on as as they call it so so Kyle before we begin um, and I really want to dig into some I think some really important topics around mathematics um, can you just take us through your career talk a little bit about sort of how you ended up where you ended up today in terms of being both a math consultant but also the podcast and all the things that you're doing. Uh, in terms of trying to drive a sort of different way of approaching mathematics instruction
1: and how kids learn math. So take us through the career and tell us a little bit about your journey. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Tom. I've been in education, uh, I guess, formally. uh, We've all been in education since we were very young, but as an educator uh, for about 17 years now, I I come from the secondary side of things, and uh, both my co-host and I are from high school math um, in the high school math classroom and you know our experiences were really similar to that which we experienced throughout our own education Um, some people might uh, you know might be able to relate to this idea of either sitting in a math classroom as a student and either sort of getting it or not getting it right like a lot of people would say like i was good at math or i wasn't good at math or i'm a math person and I'm not a math person. Well, something that uh, I realized way later after deciding that, hey, my grades are saying I'm, I'm a math person. Uh, you know, I, I seem to get it, quote unquote, uh, maybe faster than most. So I went into become a math teacher. You know, I, I didn't really think much about it. I just thought, you know, I, I think I'm I'm OK at this. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. And it was only after I got into teaching in my own classroom when I started to realize that I actually wasn't as good at math as maybe I once thought. Uh, My grades told me that I was good at math, but ultimately at the end of the day, um, I never really felt. Confident in mathematics, and you know, if you think those anyone who's taught math, whether you know it's an elementary teacher who's teaching all the subject areas and has, has taught math, or whether you're a math uh, a math focused teacher or content uh, specialist, you probably know some of those kids in your classrooms who are getting you know say the A, but don't really like exude confidence. Um, like when I was in high school, I wouldn't necessarily say I was good at math, but the grades said otherwise. So. Um, All that to say early in my career really um, found it difficult to get students to sort of pay attention to the math. I, I thought I would just do it the way I was taught and everything would be okay. Not realizing that there were tons of other kids in my classrooms as a student who didn't actually understand what was going on. I was a lucky one and, you know, managed to get through kind of game the system, so to speak. And ultimately it came down to this realization that oh my gosh, I was just really good at memorizing. And a lot of the students in my classroom who were getting these higher marks were really good at memorizing too. Something that all of my students were lacking and I lacked as a student and as a teacher was this ability to actually think, problem solve, persevere, all of the things that we say we want for our students in a math class. uh, I wasn't getting that from my students, teaching in a, what I'll call a traditional style where you know, you you give some examples, you explain the formulas to students, and then you sort of let them go off and do some practice, and and then sort of rinse and repeat each day. So, um, we've been on a, about a ten-year journey of trying to sort of really understand what does it mean to learn mathematics, what does it mean to understand mathematics, and then I guess much more difficult is how do you actually then take these ideas and help more students. So that they can access the math and feel as though they are capable math students, which I believe wholeheartedly that everybody can achieve at high levels in math class.
0: Yeah. I think you're gonna have a hard time convincing some adults that they can be, I suppose, and and some <laughs> students. But I agree with you, I agree with you. I'm with you on that. I think that's for too long. I mean, this this is the way you describe that in terms of the polarization, you're either, you know, you have the We used to talk about the math gene. You either a math Mm -hmm. person or you don't, or you're not a math person. And that that it really came down to whether or not you understood the math. Not really. You just knew how to follow directions, order of operations, you memorized the formulas. I almost a story for another day. I I almost became a math teacher. I ended up becoming a history teacher high school. Uh, but I loved math, but it was procedural. And I think Mm -hmm. you you tap into something. Uh, with the thinking, because, you know, for the longest time, math was this subject that was reduced to you're either right, or you're infinitely wrong. Mm -hmm. And, And the focus really was on following the algorithms, the procedures, the formulas to arrive at the correct answer. But the problem was, as we I think you've articulated is that, you could get the right answer, but not know why and not know, not understand the thinking behind the mathematics. So I could get the right answer, but I don't know, you know, why is a squared plus b squared equal to c squared? I don't care. I got the answer because I know how to follow that formula. So I think what we've seen is the evolution of math and, and to be about more of the thinking about math, what I know some people refer to it as the new math. It's like, Mm -hmm. but it's not new. It's the same math as it always been, you know, families, parents, communities call it that. So um, how do we help, parents families even students kind of embrace this if there seems to be this controversy around it for some people it's like the new math as I mentioned but how mm-hmm. do we get people to understand this deeper more thoughtful approach to math instruction how, how do how, what are some ways that we can help them understand that
1: yeah you know I I'm happy you brought up this idea of like new math as if like we're we're actually there's <laughs> yeah. you know this newly like discovered way to do math right. it's like no no All we're talking about is all of the math that was happening that you didn't realize was happening. You know, that's that's sort of what we look at. It's like opening up the hood and you (laughs) you explained it perfectly. If math is reduced to just being right or wrong or following a uh, a set of uh, procedures, steps, algorithms, If that's all there is to it, and don't get me wrong, I'm not this person that thinks like formulas are bad or, you know, that students shouldn't um, develop procedural fluency because I I want that for every student. I just don't think that's where we want to start. We don't want to start the journey there. So, how do you help people see that it's something more? I think it's actually in the doing of the math. Because when you look online, when you read articles, when you hear news stories on TV, you'll see that people are talking about this idea, but it's like this really high level, very abstract sort of thinking that like, you know, it's like inquiry learning is over here, investigations is over here and direct instruction is here and like that there's no overlap. When in reality, if you're way on this side or you're way on that side, you're missing the mark. and you know, I can speak for myself and and for many others who are like me who realize that, hey, a lot of my students were getting left behind when I was trying to get them to essentially follow steps and procedures. You will not reach all students by doing that. We've been trying to do that for decades. It's not working. What we can do is help students to see that it's all about relationships. It's behaviors. It's actually understanding why things are happening. That is at the root of what mathematics really is. And from that work are these steps, these procedures. You know, When I understand the behavior of mathematics uh, or, or of a concept, if I understand that, hey, there's two types of division, and I understand that when I'm doing this one type of division, that certain things happen and stand true, that's how we generalize. That's how we come up with these rules, with these procedures. And giving students the opportunity to engage in them is really important. But I think the part where we've missed along the way is going all the way to the other end, letting students explore math, but then never getting them to solidify that understanding. And and that's something that I know I really struggled with for the first, I would say, you know, decade of of trying to shift my thinking, shift my practice. I would let students explore, but then at the end, there was no sort of tying the the loose ends. There was no consolidating that learning. So back to your point about parents and, and getting adults to understand what math is really all about, I think the only way that they will ever understand to take it from this high level discussion about things they don't really know or understand or have never experienced is to actually give them that opportunity. So I find when you actually do some activities with adults and they start to see things, when you emerge an idea like why two digit by two digit multiplication works, when you're using an area model or you're, you're leveraging context, they start to go, oh, this makes, I never understood why I did what I did, but this makes perfect sense. And when you come back to them weeks later and ask them about it, it tends to stick longer as well. So when you get people to actually experience it themselves, it's like they have this mini epiphany and they start to go, I get what you mean now. Mm -hmm. Until they do that, you're trying to convince someone of something that they've never seen before. It's like me telling you the world's flat right? Or okay. if you believe the world's flat and I tell you it's round, but you've never had the opportunity to truly explore it. So mm-hmm. I think that's where we actually get to. And, and I think as educators, if we can invite more adults into our classroom, help them understand what it is that you're trying to achieve. I feel like you get more of that, you know, that understanding and they start to go, you know what? I, I trust Tom, you know, he's got my, my kids, you know, their, their education in mind and their best interest in mind. Yeah. Two things I want to follow up on
0: uh, there, Kyle. First, uh, it's probably a good thing I didn't become a math teacher. You Hmm. said there's two kinds of division. Can you explain? I wanted to
1: just sprinkle that in there because... I I didn't want to marry the lead here. I need to know...
0: to, okay. So explain. To
1: yeah, I, I will definitely explain it. It's actually something really interesting because I have a, a math degree. It, it sounds like, you know, you, you had been taking some math courses as well in university and I took one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Only, okay. So you had, you had sort of made that decision earlier on. Um, yeah. but I'm telling you, I have a math degree and I only was like, came to this conclusion that yeah. I didn't come to it. I, I discovered that wow, there's actually two types of division and it's been happening forever. Like there's no way of avoiding, it is happening no matter what. When you're dividing, you're using one of these two types and really the best way to see it is through context. So by giving a context, it makes it much more understandable. So I'm gonna give you a scenario here. Uh, I've got 12 apples, okay? We're gonna keep the numbers very, very, you know, um, uh, very accessible. Yep. Yep. Here it is. And I have three baskets, one division problem. I could say there were 12 apples divided across three baskets. And my, my question to you would be how many apples per basket are there? And I, you know, I'll, I'll let you go ahead, not to put you on the spot, but there's 12 (laughs) apples, three baskets. How many apples per basket? Well, I'm thinking there would be four. There are four apples per basket. Now, you hear me say that repeatedly because it's really uh, really important to understand. So I want everyone who's listening, so you might be watching this on YouTube, or maybe you're Mm -hmm. listening to this in your car, and you see the basket, you see three apples inside of the basket. Okay, great. That is one type of division, all right? And I will name it afterwards. The name really isn't important. But, Wouldn't there be four apples in the basket? Or sorry, four apples, three baskets, okay. four apples in every. You basket. are the you are the math teacher, yeah. Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Everyone's everyone's in their car, like crashing, and all these things. Yeah, Hopefully that's right. everyone yeah, yeah. you know focus yeah, on yeah, the yeah. road. Yeah. Uh, okay, here's the second <laughs> right. type of division in action. Okay, there's 12 apples again. Yeah. Except this time, this time I'm going to tell you something slightly different, but it's still going to be division. I'm going to say, you know what, Tom? I want to make sure. I want to make sure that every basket has four apples in it. How many mm-hmm. baskets do I need? Oh. Now, I
0: think, I think you ahead. need three. I think you're you going to need, need three. three
1: baskets. The difference yeah. here, I want to make Whew. sure that we see this side by side, is in the first case, you're actually revealing a rate. You're revealing how many per basket, how many mm-hmm. apples per basket In the second instance, we're actually revealing how many baskets or how many groups. So these two types of division are happening no matter when, like, or no matter what you're doing, there is one of these two types. You either are revealing the rate or you are dividing by the rate. So in the second case, I told you what the rate was. I said, this is how many I want per basket. Tell me how many baskets there are. Now, this might seem you know, like, w- doesn't this just confuse things? But the reality is, no, it doesn't. When you use context, students will actually do, in the first case, they go, well, there's three baskets, so you can almost envision, you can tell them a math future, I got some little cubes <laughs> ready. I would take my 12 apples and I literally would, like a, yeah. a kid in kindergarten or pre-K could take the 12 and they would put one in the first basket one in the second basket, one in the third basket, and they would do this until all 12 of the apples were gone. That's called fair sharing. So fair sharing reveals a rate. But in the other case, which is often how we talk about long division, we say, how many threes go into 12? Because I know the rate. I know that I want each group to have three. So that looks very different because kids actually have to go, well, here's three apples. So there's one basket and then they take another three apples and then they put it and there's your second basket. Do you see the strategy changes significantly? Mm -hmm. One is going one, like just one at a time until you run out. That's called fair sharing. The second one is actually repeated subtraction. You have 12 and you're subtracting three every time. So for years I told kids, well, division is repeated subtraction. But I was lying, I was, only, I was only correct half of the time. Half of the time it's repeated subtraction, the other half it's actually fair sharing. And this has huge implications as we move on into solving equations, working with ratios and rates, all of the things where things get muddy has a lot to do with not really understanding what it is that we're asking students to do. And then the uh-huh. students just trying to go, wait a second, what do I have to do again? And they try to reference some series of steps as soon as one step is missed, the entire process is lost and they feel like they can't get themselves out of it. Whereas when it's contextual, they can actually work their way through the context and use what we'd call intuition, which is really just experience and logic and reasoning to actually work their way through and then notice behaviors about the math that they're doing.
0: Yeah, Um that's that is intense for sure, and uh, I love. I mean, I I loved it. It's fascinating, and certainly what what I come to appreciate is is the, again the thinking behind the math. It's easy to say, you know, do division. You know, of course, back in the day we did long division and all of that. Mm-hmm. But it, but it but understanding the thinking behind it is I think the point. Now, um, the other question I was going going to sort of as a quick follow up is is. Why, you know, for just from a teaching perspective, maybe not just math, but why do you think we're so drawn to these, these, um, I suppose identities or silos where, you know, I'm only an inquiry teacher, I'm only a direct instruction? Why, why do you think sometimes we, we are drawn to that instead of understanding that there's a place for all of it, uh, in, in a, in a balanced classroom? What are your thoughts? Quick thoughts
1: on that? My, my immediate thought, and I, and I talk about this quite a bit with educators, is I, I think it's honestly human nature that we're sort of like on or off, we're all in, we're all out. We have a right. really tough time with balance. Okay. Uh, it's like, you know, you see people who, hey, they, you know, if, if you eat a lot. You know, it's hard to find that balanced diet. It's like, I either eat, don't eat enough or I eat too much, or I'm eating too much of the wrong thing, or I'm only going to eat healthy things. It's really tough to like find that balance. And I think the same is true in a math classroom, not to mention that most of us, I say most of us, I would say the vast majority of us learned in a very similar fashion, which was very procedural, very step-by-step which also means that we have a lot of work to do. If I want to kind of venture into this more investigative inquiry land, you get put in a really tough spot because you as a student haven't necessarily experienced what you're trying to create for students. So that, that's a really tough spot to be. So when you get into inquiry, what ends up happening is sometimes students do some things which you're like, whoa, I have no idea. Like how did they, How did like kids are like brilliant. The things that they do, it's like the human brain, if you actually let it do its thing, which is like think, (laughs) reason, (laughs) it comes up with some really amazing things. And this makes us feel very uncomfortable as educators. So sometimes what ends up happening is we either avoid that type of instruction. So we go, well, I just, I wanna do my note. I wanna make sure we get through these three examples and everyone's good to go. Or they go to this end and they let them explore, but then they're sort of not sure what to do with it. Like Tom did it this way over here. And Julia did it, you know, this way over here. And if I don't have that, that content knowledge, that pedagogical content knowledge or experience, when I'm looking at that, I might miss the fact that, wow, like, Tom, your strategy is actually, actually more accessible and leads us. There's a connection that leads us mm-hmm. to Julia's so that me as the educator, I can take those two and actually use them to help more students enter into the math. So I could go, does everyone see what Tom did? And everyone's like, yes, it's very obvious. Tom used linking cubes and you can see the groups and all these things. Mm-hmm. But then over here, Julia's used like a number line, but she's made jumps of three. It's like, if I miss the fact that, wait a second, that's the same thing Tom just did, except you use cubes and she used a number line, I'm missing this opportunity to let more students sort of push their thinking forward. Maybe next time, Tom, maybe you won't go for the linking cubes. Maybe you might start leveraging that that um, that number line to try to get right. us closer or more abstract towards uh, a procedure or an algorithm. Yeah. It's, it's it, again, the, the, deep,
0: the deeper we go and the, the more you explain, the more important it is that you start, start to hear and see and feel the importance of understanding the thinking behind it and the way you can spark that curiosity and the way that kids can build off of each other in, in the mm-hmm. work that they're doing. Um, I want to shift a little bit here to um, thoughts around, you know, I w- not becoming a trained math teacher, but I did teach middle school math for a few years. And I, of course, was the brilliant teacher who said... You're never going, you have to know this because you're never going to have a calculator with you all the time, which of course we now know is not true. Um, (laughs) But we live in an age where information is ubiquitous. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you go on to Google, I can Google the Pythagorean calculator in five seconds and it comes up instantly. And so much as we've talked about already, so much of math in the past has been about memorization or learning. I mean, at some level, it's kind of hard to tell the difference. Like, did I learn that nine? multiplied by 8 was 72. Did I memorize that? Mm -hmm. I I don't know where the line is on that. But my question is this, when it comes to sort of the the modern approach to math, how much should students be able to recall from memory? You know, do it memorize it or learn it, whatever you want to call it? And how much should we now be allowing them to either reference or to use calculator or tools? Mm -hmm. Is that contextual? Does it depend on their age? Where do you stand on that? Where 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 do you draw the line on what I need to know from memory and what I can reference or use?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's such a tough question because I think it's like, it depends is probably like the general answer here. Of course. However, yeah. I will, you know, I'll kind of compare and contrast because there's a few things that I think people would group or lump things into. So for example, typically or traditionally i would say people who say that you know memorization of things like math facts formulas procedures whatever a lot of those peoples would those people would say you know those are really important and however those people might still leverage the calculator for other things like i've got kind of a a different approach here a different thought and my thought is i want students Uh, playing with the mathematics and actually reasoning, improving their way as often as possible. And that oftentimes means selecting quantities that are going to help them continue to build more automaticity with math facts, with procedures, with all of those ideas. So I guess the short answer is if everyone could memorize everything, that would be great, but I want it deeper than memorization. I actually want more, I want automaticity. So like when I think about memorization, um, I I sort of default to like a Kathy Fosno approach. Uh, she, She kind of references this idea of automaticity versus memorization. And I imagine in my mind, like a phone number is something I memorize. There are certain things in life that you want to memorize. Nowadays, some would argue you don't even have to do that because your phone does that. But I still want to know my address. I still want to know. A lot of those things are straight memorization. It's very difficult to actually like have a connection or or use a relationship. You might use like a mnemonic. So for example, the last four digits of my phone number are 0078. So I always say 0078. That's like a nice memory hook. It has nothing to do with the phone number or me or anything in my life. It's just a way for me to remember something. I don't want that for math class. I don't want to be doing those things. What I want is automaticity, which is where my connections, like the relationships, the behaviors are linking things together so that when I do happen to forget something, I can get there. So one of the easiest ones is like nine times eight. If I know that eight times eight is sixty four, maybe that's a fact I know. I know nine times eight is like one more group of eight, or it could be one more group of nine, depending on which, you know, which way you're looking at it. Uh, and I can get myself there. So for example, like six times seven is one of the, you know, one of the difficult ones, seven times eight is a difficult one. Do I want students to know that? Sure. That would be great. But if they don't, I don't want them to say I don't know the answer. I want them to be able to go, Okay, what do I know? Okay, well, if it's seven times eight, I do know that seven times seven's 49. So now what do I need to do? Okay, I can just add one more group and I can get there. Even if I have to like one-to-one count to get there. Like I want it so that it's accessible for the learner. I don't want them to -to one-to-one count if I can help it, but if that's the way that will help them access the math, then I want it. So in my class, I want to demote the use of calculators wherever possible, but not defaulting to an algorithm, I want to give them math models and I want to emerge strategies to get there. We already talked about the number line, like that's a great tool. The area model can be excellent at students actually like breaking down factors and breaking, essentially using what we call the distributive property to do the math because the algorithm essentially leverages the distributive property. All it's doing is it's just breaking things down into 10 and however many ones are left over. That's all that's happening. So if it's 27 times 26, it's just like 20 plus six and 20 plus seven. And then they use the distributive property. That's what the algorithm does. But no, where I say no, very few students were, are aware of that. If they develop it, then that algorithm emerges from everything they know. And if they forget the algorithm, they can go, you know what? I know it's based on the area model. If I just draw the area model, oh, there, I remember now. Now I can go back here and Mm -hmm. I can keep going. So I I look at it as, you know, just this progression. We want to keep all students progressing. We don't want a student to, to have a barrier to entry because they don't necessarily know how to memorize or they're not able to memorize uh, blindly. We want it to be through connections and relationships.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, finding a way to transition that from, you know, know it, learn it, understand it, and then have it because that automaticity, I, I love that. And the mm-hmm. idea of being able to reference it and self-direct yourself, you know, maybe if I draw the area model, I can I can begin, and then you trigger it for yourself. So that that sort of self sufficiency and the way students learn learn to think that way. Mm-hmm. I want to pivot now to um, assessment, because obviously, you know, in my work in assessment, I often encounter with with math teams. I encounter again a little bit of polarization. On the one hand, I encounter math teams that are traditionalists, and you know, every every assessment is a stapled packet of paper and, and they've got a packet of problems to solve and and just solve these equations or mm-hmm. what, what have you. And then on the other hand, I encounter the opposite end, which is, you know, teachers who are much more creative with their approaches to math assessments. So I've got two parts to this question. Mm-hmm. Um, one, what are some of the most interesting, maybe thought-provoking, yet still authentic ways to assess math? And then the second, why do you think, some math teachers are so hesitant to step outside of that established sort of status quo in those traditional types of assessments.
1: Yeah, again, I think, I think it's what we know. It's what we, I guess, think math is. Uh, that you need to know certain things before you can move on. And, you know, so there's these like... And and in reality, it's true, right? Like we do have to build, like these ideas build on other ideas. It's, you know, you go to history class and of course there's, you know, you could look at over time, like over a time of, you know, how World War II, how World War I impacted World War II. But like mathematics, it continues to get more complex and ideas build on one another. So I think we are we are um, maybe hyper-focused on this idea of students need to get to here before they're even able to like engage over here, which I don't think Mm -hmm. is necessarily true. Um, It can be problematic uh, as we know, but students, you know, they can figure things out as they go and it's not a perfect line. So when it comes to assessment, I I think we're so used to trying to have this sort of you know when we talk about assessment as well I, I picture assessment and evaluation is very different but in math class we do a lot of evaluating and you know maybe not so much assessing so what i mean by that is you know i remember vividly my first year teaching on a wednesday night big leaf fan so i'd watch the leaf game and i'd start marking the test on quadratics and i remember thinking to myself holy smokes like half the kids failed this thing And it was only like years later when I was like, how is it possible that that was shocking to me? Like, how did I not know that was already going to happen? And the reality was because every class was me doing most of the talking, kids Mm -hmm. copying. And then when I gave them time to work, they were, you know, pretty much like bored out of their mind and, and didn't leverage that time. So I didn't assess in my class. And I think in math class, if we give students through problem-based lessons, if we give them the opportunity and we ask them more questions, we can actually assess each and every day. We can assess by listening to what they say to each other, by working in groups. We can assess by observing what they're doing. It doesn't always have to be student product. And then when it comes to, if you wanna have that formal test at the end of unit one, fine you have that unit test but going into that unit test you should probably already know where most of the students are in your classroom so if anything it should be to just sort of like confirm where they are or and and if if it does confirm and let's say tom you're you know you got a 55 my question for educators would be wouldn't you want tom to want to get better at that Mm-hmm. So to me, I look at every test that I would give, I call them, we, we call them check-ins. We do them usually weekly, but you could do them bi-weekly. I want mm-hmm. to essentially confirm what I think I know about my students, meaning what they know, understand, and can do in my classroom. And I want to use that information to help me determine, are we all ready to move on? Are some students ready to move on and others Mm -hmm. maybe need a little bit more of this over here? Maybe that's a small group opportunity or like, is this something like, holy smokes, like we really missed the mark and it? I'm I'm going to take another day to try to figure this out. What I don't want it to be, which is what happens for educators who are trying to be progressive is they often just do this thing where they go, okay, like redos. And then they just like print off another copy of the test, they give it to the student. And it's like, if they memorized it better this time, we're good to go. I want it to truly be about learning and understanding. So oftentimes before a student can come to me and say, hey, I want to reassess uh, or be reassessed on something. I'll usually have a conversation with them at the whiteboard. I'll say, hey, here's a problem. Can you explain to me what's going on here? And very quickly, I'll understand whether this is a worthwhile experiment at this point or whether maybe they have more work to do, whether that's together or independently or maybe a little bit of both. So I want it to be all about growth. And to me, the real evaluation for me comes at the very end of the course. And it's only because of a structural reason, which is the course is over. And, you know, we're moving on now, right? So I mean, the the course is done. So that's your final evaluation. Everything to me should be formative in nature. And of course, you're putting it on a report card, you're doing all of those things, but it should be very dynamic based on what students know now, not what they did or didn't know two weeks ago, three months ago, whatever it might be.
0: Two two things you mentioned there that really caught my attention. Um, one, I, I can't believe the way you phrased that. I was working with a math team. Just very quick story. Working with a math team in Utah last spring, and they asked me to audit one of their summative assessments, unit tests, etc. And the first thing I noticed when I put it up on the when they put it up on the screen and we went through it. Of course, I asked them what standards are you assessing, etc. I said there's only four questions on this assessment. Is that and I always use the phrase is that an adequate sample? Do you have enough? to judge where the students are. And what the department chair said to me is that, you know, Tom, we assess our students all along, we pay attention, we we kind of know where they, you said it the exact same way she said it, we kind of know where they are going into the test, the test just confirms what we already suspect about our learners, which to me was was just a, a, a great way of, of of phrasing that. The other point, of course, very quickly being about reassessment. You know, I often say to people, reassessment cannot be an exercise and, hey, come in tomorrow and guess differently. Uh, you know, let's let's make sure it's learning focused and all of that. So I love that. Now, Kyle, I know you are a big proponent of, of uh, problem-based or project-based. I think problem-based learning is probably a, a better way to phrase that from a mathematics perspective. Um, so what does that look like in, in a math class? What is, what is a problem-based approach from the the, uh, not just solving problems on the micro, but what would a problem-based approach look like from front to back? How What would that look like in a school?
1: Yeah, we tried to, you know, John and I for a really long time tried, uh, you know, we were very, very uh, inspired by the work of Dan Meyer. He was doing, mm-hmm. you know, some media-rich tasks. He, he called them three-act math tasks. And we did a lot of work with that. But what we found, Um, you know, we became, I would say, pretty good at getting students to look our way so that, you know, gain their attention. Mm -hmm. That was fantastic. It was really important, the first major step in our journey. But what we realized was we still left a lot of math on the table, meaning, you know, we got them engaged in a problem, but then it was like, all right, now let us show you how to do it. And then, you know, so we kind of went back to our old self. And, you know, over time, what we realized is that you know, there's three kind of important parts of an of a lesson. That beginning part that we talk about is all about sparking curiosity. You do need to gain their attention. Uh, and you can do that in a variety of ways. It doesn't have to be media rich. It doesn't have to always be a visual. Uh, sometimes it could be just a really good story or a really good context, right? So you want them to be able to like in their mind, kind of like visualize the problem that they're, they're about to engage in. Okay. And then you want to actually give it a productive struggle. So that's sort of this middle part. We call that fueling sense-making. We want students to actually have to work through a problem. Now, the problem has to be selected such that we haven't pre-taught like a a procedure or a method to get there, but it can't be completely out in left field where they, they have no readiness to access it. So you have to find this nice balance there where there's gonna be enough struggle there but they have enough tools in their tool belt where they will likely get to this answer some way, somehow. Mm-hmm. And in our minds, we've already you know, set what our learning goal is. And the learning goal is the new idea, the new method, the new strategy, the new uh, generalization that we're hoping to arrive at from the work of the student. So that that's the way it sort of is, is structured in our class. We like to some, sometimes call it the real flipped classroom, because if you think about it, usually right. it's like a I do, then it's like a we do, and then it's a you do. And really, all we're doing is we're going flip that upside down and go, here, you do this one. It's obviously again has to has to be selected with a low floor, high ceiling, uh, with a, a you know an adequate enough struggle so that students want to engage in that task but aren't overwhelmed or aren't underwhelmed by it. Um, and then it's like then we can we do together, meaning we can go around consolidate this this thinking, and then finally. We as the educator, this is the part that I think a lot of people leave out when they try to do a problem-based style lesson, is that you as the educator still need to make sure that they heard what you wanted them to get out of it, right? We don't want them to walk away, uh, you know, something that a a colleague had mentioned was this idea of the oblivious viewer uh, loop. And it's the idea like when you're watching a show and you're sitting there and you're like, oh, did you see what just happened? You look at the person next to you and they're like, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? Like they totally missed it. (laughs) And they're just oblivious to what what happened. And that happens in math class all the time. You might be like, that was so obvious what just happened. And everyone's gonna walk away knowing that there's two types of division or whatever it was that you wanted. It's like, no, this is the time where now we as the educator intentionally want to make sure that, hey, What we did here was this, here's what we learned about it. And here's one more example. Like this is where you get to be the teacher, where you get to say, hey, Mm -hmm. here's what happened. And like, let's summarize this. Let's make sure we know what it is that we just learned here. And now we're going to let you go off and do some purposeful practice. And while you're practicing, I'm going to be walking around. I'm going to be observing. I'm going to be watching. I'm going to be asking you questions. And that is how you get to know your students. You get to know where they are. You saw them do the problem at the beginning of the lesson. That helps you tailor what your lesson really looks like versus just going in blind, assuming no one has any assets to bring with them into this classroom. So a lot of teachers are worried about losing time by doing this, when in reality, it's actually the opposite. You actually save time because you see, wow, a lot of students in my class are already doing this strategy and I was gonna spend a whole day teaching them that strategy, like maybe Mm -hmm. we can move on to the next part and, you know, save that time so that students can kind of dig deeper. So for us, that's like a problem-based lesson. Um, on our website, we have a full framework there, a, a nice big long article that you can read at makemathmoments.com forward slash framework. Um, and that will break down those three chunks. And we, we use some examples so that you have, you know, something to kind of work from as well as all of our tasks out there that, uh, that educators yeah. can try with their own students. Love that,
0: uh, love it. I think the uh, the way you describe that as the ultimate flipped classroom, I think that's universally applicable to in 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 any subject. I, I think that's you know an opportunity to explore. Making sure students though have enough knowledge, enough background knowledge. I mean, I think that's where some inquiry based learning approaches to learning end up falling short. As I interviewed mm-hmm. John Hattie a, a month ago or whatever, just a few episodes ago. And he talked about how it's important that students have a foundation of knowledge before they develop a question because they have to know what they don't know or what, I may not know what I'm curious about, right? And the same with mm-hmm. solving a problem. That is the ultimate formative assessment that you just described there, which is, you know, seeing what they know, seeing that they're already using that strategy. I would have wasted 20 minutes, an hour, two class periods. Oh, so I mean, much, you dude. just find a way to, to grasp, you know, to find out where they are so you can move forward on that. I uh, absolutely spoke to me for sure. Okay, mm-hmm. last question before we finish up with our, our uh, the final two questions I always ask. Last question about math. I You know, I always think that being a reflective teacher, I think, is a, an important quality for for all of us to cultivate. So, I'm, I'm wondering... From a math teacher perspective, what are, besides the idea of, like, did my students learn what I taught them today? I mean, that's a, a fairly straightforward question you could ask yourself, but what do you feel are some other questions that if, if, if math teachers listening right now are thinking about, they want to do a little internal audit, they want to reflect on their classroom, what are some questions they could ask themselves to kind of guide themselves in creating a, a, a more rich thinking-based experience for their learners?
1: I love it. I, you know, I, I would ask, you know, now just to, to confirm, are we asked, are this questions for teachers to ask themselves? Themselves? Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I I would, I would say like, what, not only like, did my students learn what I taught them today? That's very important. And again, like I said, easy to forget, easy to forget to, to, to do. Um, But I would say is like, did my students actually engage in thinking, in reasoning, in proving, mm-hmm. in conjecturing, in estimating. Like, just to give you an, uh, an example, I was that student. I remember vividly in my elementary years, uh, I had a textbook where it was almost like every question was like part A was estimate, part B was calculate. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, they were, they were trying, like, you know, but the reality <laughs> is I was that kid who calculated And then I would just like take three off to do my estimate. So I never actually engaged in estimation. Mm -hmm. So when we think about this as educators, it's like estimating is so important for students to actually um, gain an understanding of not only the context, but then when they do the work, when they look at their final answer, if you've ever looked at a problem, these math teachers will be able to relate. You look at a problem and you go, how is that even like, how did you think it was 3 billion liters of gas to get to, you know, wherever, right? Like, is that reasonable? And it's like, if I didn't actually allow them an opportunity to estimate, like what's reasonable here. And the only way we can do that is by giving students an opportunity to think. So one little quick tip I'll give, and and then I'll, (laughs) I'll leave this one alone. But if you're a teacher and you're going, I ask my students to estimate, but they're all like Kyle, and they calculate, and then they just adjust the number afterwards. Um, we like to say uh, withholding information is one of the best things you can do in your math class. Um, we call it the curiosity path. So we start with withholding information. That's how we start all of our problem-based tasks is mm-hmm. through not giving enough, where you have to use either like a you know a, a spatial visualization to kind of estimate or like you don't see enough of the information. So you have to use what you know about the context in order to come up with a reasonable estimate. And then the beauty is from there, we ask students like, wow, what would you like to know to help us take all these estimates and start to like get them more precise. And when you do that day after day, when students see that it's like all of our estimates in the class are like this, and then with the help of mathematics, We can get it really close with more and more information. We can get more and more precise. You don't get those students asking you at the end of the day, like, when am I ever going to use this? They're like, wow, I just thought I was reasoning. I was proving. I was conjecturing. I was arguing with my neighbors. Like, those are the things that I want to do more of in my math class. And then all the other things come from that. So you will get the benefit of more math yeah. fact memorization all of those other pieces follow from engaged students who think and once
0: again all of that applicable to mm. every subject area absolutely did, did my students think today did they engage in reasoning did they engage in conjecture did they make an estimate you can make estimations and and project and and think about things historically you can think about chemistry. You can, there's so many, so much applicability there. So I hope listeners as Kyle's been, you know, we've obviously been focused on math, but so much of what you've talked about today is, is really applicable to almost every, every classroom and every subject area for sure. Who's doing the thinking is probably one of the most important questions we can ask as teachers. Two questions, Kyle, as we finish up today, questions I ask everyone on the podcast that comes on Uh, the first question, of course, um, take this in any direction you want to, but the question is quite simply, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night?
1: What keeps me up at night? I feel what keeps me up at night is that I think we are so early on this mathematics journey. And I I feel like a lot of people are going to be like, what are you talking about? Haven't we been arguing? You know, the math wars have been going on for, for so long. <laughs> yeah. But the reason I say it, we're so early in this journey is because, of some of the pieces I had mentioned earlier, where we are still trying to learn conceptually how math works. And the further up the grade levels you go, the harder and more complex it becomes. So for, you know, again, I'll give another example, ratios and rates they are really muddy. Like if you ask teachers, like what is a proportional relationship? You're gonna get a jumbled mess of all kinds of different definitions. Mm -hmm. And until we gain a better understanding as, as an educational community as to what are these things and how do they work conceptually, not just procedurally, but conceptually, it's going to be really, really challenging for us to do that well and consistently with students. So mm-hmm. it keeps me up at night because um, I, I know it's worth the effort, but we have a long way to go. And uh, I, just, I just hope that we're all willing to put in that time and effort and uh, we don't sort of give up too soon on it. Right, right. The bath wars continue. Um, <laughs> I can sad. imagine
0: you know it, it's it's like anything you get a group of teachers who are passionate about a subject and everybody brings their perspective and viewpoint and background and paradigm Absolutely. to that conversation so it definitely is tough okay we're going to finish up on a light note here Kyle yes uh, last question um, I love food uh, I'm a good fashion myself to be a little bit of a, a foodie um, and my question to you ultimately you live in Bell River Ontario so I want to know Where's the best place to eat in Bell River, Ontario?
1: You know what? Bell River is such a small town. So I've got two things for you because I know a lot of people talk about pizza joints all over the place. If uh, Bell River is a suburb of Windsor, Ontario, we are like the most Southern area in Canada. So if you look at a map, we're actually South of Detroit. Like who would have thought just a a jump South of the Detroit River, which everyone's like, what? I thought Canada was North. Anyway, uh, so in Windsor, pizza. Windsor pizza is super popular. Uh, So I'm not going to tell you Windsor pizza places, but I will tell you in Bell River, we have we are a town of 5000 and over a stretch of less than five kilometers along the same road, the same road, we have 10 pizza joints over that five kilometer stretch for 5,000 people. So that's how much people love pizza around here, especially <laughs> Windsor style pizza. But the restaurant I'm going to tell you about, if you're in Windsor, uh, it's my wife and, uh, and my favorite restaurant. It's a small Italian restaurant called Avanti. Uh, it's just on the corner of Ottawa Street and Hall Street in Windsor, Ontario. It's very small. Uh, but uh, the the cook uh, is amazing and actually uh, went to the same high school as both my uh, my wife and I and uh, every opportunity we have to go out to dinner we go there and anytime someone comes from out of town we take them there so Avanti in Windsor and then any pizza joint in Bell River or Windsor Essex you're gonna love it.
0: (laughs) Fantastic it's it's funny that pizza seems to come up uh, many times uh, when I ask that question, it's always it's always a good time for sure.
1: We'll have a pizza wars uh, discussion next time. Pizza, pizza wars. Who's that's the a, best pizza. Yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely. Listeners, you can uh, follow uh, Kyle on Twitter and Instagram. The handle on both platforms is at Mathlete Pierce. I'll have links in the show notes for that as well. And you can also follow the account uh, at Math Make Moments. Uh, that is uh, Twitter and Instagram. Did I get, did I get that right?
1: Uh, at make math moments,
0: make math moments. Lots, of thought, lots of M's, lots of M's. That's right. I, I, I kind of, as soon as I said it, I thought I got it wrong. Uh, and of course it's makemathmoments.com is the website. And of course you've, you've got the podcast as well. So I'll put links in the show notes, uh, awesome. for all of that listeners to, to follow Kyle and follow, um, both Kyle and John on, uh, on make math moments for sure. So, uh, Kyle, a uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for doing this,
1: man. I really appreciate it. Hey, Tom, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, We love your work. And uh, thanks for uh, introducing us to to an amazing audience.
0: This podcast is a proud
1: member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode.
0: In Assessment Corner this week. I want to highlight something I read from Dylan William. Uh, He wrote a chapter in this anthology called Research Ed Guide to Assessment, edited by Sarah Donarski. Like I said, it's an anthology, and and Dylan William wrote the first chapter. And the first chapter was called How to Think About Assessment. And here's what caught my attention in this chapter. In the chapter, Dylan William states that... uh, He's following up on the work of Lee J. Cronbach uh, from all the way back in 1971. So it just goes to show you that this assessment stuff is not new. It's been out there. I know some people, you know, it's new to you or you've kind of discovered things, and that's fair because again, as I always say, we can't know everything about everything, but it's not new, okay? These are not new ideas. These are ideas that just we need to keep reminding ourselves of. Okay, how to think about assessment. Here's what he's, he wrote. Think of assessment as a procedure for drawing inferences. Now that's interesting, right? William writes this, we give students things to do, tasks, activities, tests, et cetera, and we collect evidence from the students from which we draw conclusions. And he goes on to say that defining an assessment as a procedure for drawing inferences also clarifies that it makes no sense to define the terms formative and summative as kinds of assessments, because the same assessment can be used summatively and formatively. So it's the inferences that are formative and summative, right? There may be some assessments, of course, that are, you know, better for the summative purpose and maybe others that are better suited for the formative purpose, but it's the inferences that are used formatively or summatively, right? This view brings up some very interesting points. Like this view, this idea of assessments as procedures for drawing inferences, Not only does it bring up a couple of important points, it brings up some clarifying points. And some of these you've heard from me before, but I think they are worth repeating here. The first one is that it strengthens our understanding that summative assessment does not have to be a thing. Like if you take the idea of drawing inferences, that mindset, you can now see how summative can simply be a moment in time where a teacher examines the preponderance of evidence and determines or infers the degree to which the student has met the learning goal. Now, it's okay to have a thing, a noun. Like, we don't always have to have these sort of dichotomies or these binary choices. It's okay to have a test or an event at the end in the, you know, because it gives the students another opportunity to show a deeper, more thorough level of understanding. However, I do think this point about inferences is important because we don't need to rely on that one so-called summative at the end. It doesn't need to always be this sort of high stakes, if you can't do it on Thursday at one fifteen, then I guess you don't know it kind of event. Okay? So that idea of looking at the preponderance of evidence, I think, is reinforced when we look at assessment as a procedure for gathering evidence to draw, from which we draw inferences. Okay, now here's the second point that I think is really important. This view of assessment as a procedure for drawing inferences also helps us understand validity. Now, you've heard me say this many times on the podcast, but it's a good reminder that assessments are neither valid or invalid. You only either make a valid or invalid interpretation of the evidence. In other words, you make a valid or an invalid inference. Now, Dylan William makes another great point in crafting a response to the question. When somebody asks you, is this test valid? I think this is a really, really great response. He writes that when someone asks you uh, that question, is this test valid? The best response to that is, tell me what you propose to conclude about the student when you see their test score, and I'll tell you whether that conclusion is justified. I think that's brilliant. Validity, or again, a, a valid interpretation, is vulnerable under two conditions, okay? And this is where we have to understand whether or not we could draw a valid conclusion. The first vulnerability, if you will, is underrepresentation. In other words, sample size. An assessment need not be lengthy if you're willing to consider the preponderance of evidence all along the way. But if you don't, then you need to make sure there is an adequate sample in order to justify the inference you've drawn from the evidence. Okay, so we need to first make sure there is enough of a sample. Now, the other vulnerability is about construct irrelevant variance. Now, bear with me here, okay? So I know that's a fancy term, et cetera. But construct, you'll understand it once I explained it. Construct irrelevant variance. That's just a fancy way of saying Are there irrelevant factors that are creating a variation in how students are responding? Okay, so this example, once I give the example, it's going to be easy for you to understand. What do we want a math test to test, right? Obviously, we want the math test to test the student's skills in mathematics, and the differences in scores would represent varying degrees of skills in mathematics. Variations in scores caused by variations of understanding are construct relevant because they matter. Right? So if I have different levels of understanding of the mathematics in the class, I would expect differences in scores, and that would help me understand the various levels of achievement and the degree to which students have met the learning goals. That would help me understand that. But if the variation in scores is also a result of varied reading levels, that is construct irrelevant. Because you might look at the test scores and infer a certain level of math ability But some of those differences were actually caused by varied reading levels. So it actually makes our inferences a little bit murky, right? So construct irrelevance is something that contributes to the conclusion that really is irrelevant to what you're assessing. So do I have an adequate sampling? And have I, to the best of my ability, ensured construct relevance, right? Those are the two questions we should ask ourselves about any assessment. Now, I know that's not always possible, but... We could then add components to confirm. So for example, reading assessments that require writing are potentially construct irrelevant. So maybe we we can't change the format of this one particular assessment that requires writing. So maybe adding in an oral component at another time or adding in an oral component at the same time is a way to kind of control for that. Is it a reading issue? Is it a writing issue? If the responses that are oral are also showing a limited understanding or depth of knowledge, then we might be onto something in terms of the inferences that we're drawing. All of this is connected to the issue of reliability as well. If an assessment is not reliable, we can't draw valid inferences of the results because they work together. They're not separate entities, right? The lack of reliability comes from the construct irrelevant variance. Poor readers will disproportionately struggle with some math questions, not necessarily because they don't know the math, we don't know that, but because they struggle with the reading. So the assessment could lack reliability and without reliability, we can't make a valid inference. So the main point here, and let me try to clarify this for you because I know this has been a bit technical, but let me try to clarify this for you. The main point here is that A clear view of assessment as a procedure for drawing inferences allows us to understand the assessment fundamentals more clearly, and and they are these. First, assessment types are not formative and summative. Our inferences are used formatively and summatively. It's about the action, and, and you've heard that before. The second thing we understand is that we have to design our assessments with an adequate sample in mind. Do we have an adequate sampling? Will I have enough evidence to draw an accurate conclusion or inference? So, we have to make sure when we design our assessments, we guard against underrepresentation. And the third piece, right? So, assessment types are not formative or summative. Do I have an adequate sampling? And number three, can I, to the best of my ability, isolate what I'm assessing, right? As much as possible. I know it's not always possible, but at least by being aware of the potential construct irrelevant factors we will likely make more accurate inferences or at least we will have enough wherewithal to gather more evidence before drawing a definitive conclusion about any student's ability or their level of proficiency. So seeing assessment as a procedure for drawing inferences expands our view away from everything being about one assessment or one test or one event and being more about reaching a conclusion based on all of the evidence we've seen from the student regardless of how formal or informal that evidence might be. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, TomShimmerPod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for Assessment Corner, or you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. Next week, my guest will be my friend, Christine Tessorio mazzoni uh, Christine is a former director of curriculum uh, in international schools and now turned educational consultant. Christine and I dive into instructional coaching and all that's important in that role. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear... Please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate it.